A professional ski mountaineer for more than 13 years, Hillary O'Neill started out her career at a very young age. Skiing since she was three, she spent most of her early days on the many 14,000-foot peaks near where she went to school in Colorado. And then when I finished college, I moved to Chamonix in France for about five years. And that brought in sort of the more big mountain, high-altitude stuff with glaciers and ice climbing and all that kind of stuff and sort of brought all the pieces together. In 1999, she came to the attention of the North Face Pro Mountaineering team. Looking for an elite female athlete to round out their roster, TNF connected with O'Neill at the Outdoor Retailer Show in Salt Lake City, Utah. With solid climbing skills and a resume packed with a sense both in North America and in Europe, she was just what they were looking for. And uh, three weeks later, I was on a plane to the Indian Himalaya. So that was my first big expedition, and then from there on, I was hooked. For more than a decade, Anil has put in two to three trips to the Himalaya each year. And in the middle of a very busy career, she managed to find time to get married and give birth to two sons. As a wife and mother, she's still at the top of her game as a world-class mountaineer. Most recently in 2012, during one of the most challenging climbing seasons ever, Anil made a successful ascent of Mount Everest and then climbed to the top of nearby Lhotse, another 8,000-meter peak, both on the same day. On tour with the North Face Speaker Series, O'Neill visited Madison, Wisconsin to sit down with me to share her story in a presentation she calls The Road Not Taken. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. significant learning curve for you to, to be able to go from you know domestic ski mountaineering in the United States to going abroad to a place like Nepal? It was a huge learning curve. Just going from the States to Chamonix was the first big learning curve of getting into you know skiing with ropes and harnesses and all that kind of stuff. And then going from the Alps to the Himalayas was a massive learning curve, both like culturally and for myself personally in a sport, because all of a sudden now it was becoming more about the climbing and less about the skiing. And so I really had to focus on, on those climbing skills more than skiing for the first time in my life. And it was also about, you know, sustaining mental toughness over three, four, five, six-week periods, you know, and, and being out and exposed for long periods of time. You know, a lot of winter camping, a lot of storms. And so it was a very steep learning curve. <laughs> You know, I think right after India, I went to Russia and spent, you know, got stuck in a storm and spent six days in a snow cave with a bunch of Russians, you know. I was like, where am I? <laughs> so, yes, it was a, a steep learning curve. So now what motivates you to, to do that kind of thing? I mean, you obviously had this, this great opportunity, but what made you stick with it? I just love the, the satisfaction I get from it, the adventure of it expeditions really are different and that you can plan to the best of your abilities and it never turns out the way you planned it it's always you know there's always something new that you never expected the climbing's harder or easier or just different 
And that's the part of it I love. And I really like challenging myself. High altitude, obviously, is something that's always been a major draw for me. And I like the simplicity of it. Through the course of all that, you also had an opportunity to fall in love and get married and to start to raise a family. Yes. And you got a husband and two small boys at home. Yes. Now, I've heard you say in previous interviews that being a parent is infinitely more difficult and more challenging than being a mountaineer. I, I, I frankly, I got I to gotta know. I mean, <laughs> what is it about parenting that, that's so much more difficult than, than being a climber? Well, parenting, I think you are not always operating within your own decisions your choices you know a lot of what you're doing is at the the need or the call of your children and it's just very different you know to leave and go on a a, a mountaineering trip you're you're choosing things you actually have some silence you can sleep at night you know things like that when you're home with you know two super active little boys it's you know totally cliche to say it's like the hardest job you'll ever love but it it's so true. It's, it's very difficult. It's just challenging mentally. It's, you know, you're always worried if you're being a good parent or, you know, making the wrong decisions for your kids or the right decisions. And, you know, when you're out in the mountains and you're, you know, when I'm doing this job, I know it so well. A lot of the guessing game is out of it for me at this point. Whereas with kids, it's a day-to-day thing that you're learning all the time. And it's challenging. <laughs> What's the most difficult part about being away from them for such a long period of time you know, while you're on expedition? Right now, I think it's their age. Because uh, they're three and five. I mean, yeah. they're, they're young kids. Yeah. I mean, my younger son, you know, he turned three while I was on Everest. And at that age, they just change so drastically from week to week. They're growing. Their vocabulary is increasing. You know, they're obviously previous expeditions, but they're learning to walk, they're, you know, getting out of diapers, like there's huge changes at this young of an age. And so that part I find really difficult. You know, I'm missing this, that, I'm missing this thing, I'm missing that thing. For them, I think actually me being away will be harder as they get older. Because for now, they don't have a great concept of time and whatnot. So it's sort of you know, even for my youngest, it was like I went out to dinner or something, you know, and <laughs> came back 10 weeks later. But I think as they get older, it would be more difficult for them. And right now, it's more difficult for me, I think, for sure. So now you just came off of Everest. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, it's fair to say that 2012 was probably one of the most challenging years on the mountain in a long time. Can you give me an idea as to what your expedition experience was like during that particular season of climbing? Well, it was difficult. I mean, first of all, you know, it was my dream to take my skis to the top of Everest, and we figured out fairly early on that that wasn't going to happen. So that was a pretty big disappointment. And bringing my skis down the mountain, it was like, all right, I've I've totally got to, you know, readjust my thinking and and just focus on climbing. And the climbing was much more difficult in that the snow there was no snow so you're climbing on ice the majority of the summit day on everest was on rock which is super unusual i mean just speaking to the sherpas who climbed 10 12 14 times up the mountain and had never seen conditions as poor as this so you know that also you know being a professional climber you you have some experience with 
crampons on rock and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of the guided clients that made, you know, already difficult climbing much more difficult for them. And so it slowed down everybody's paces. There was more fatigue, all that kind of stuff involved. And uh, it made it very challenging. I mean, plus there was a lot of people there too. I mean, um, at, at, I think at any one point there was as many as 600 people trying to make a summit bid this season. Yeah. I, how was that in terms of just being able to navigate your own own expedition? Ironically, we, we had gotten to base camp pretty early. And for what, however it worked out, most of our rotations seemed to be at opposite times of other people. So rotation when you're kind of moving up the mountain to a camp and coming back down. So for me, it, that whole part, like moving up the mountain and our acclimatizing and all that felt very like we were the only ones on the mountain. You know, there were definitely a thousand people at base camp at any given time. But the, those times we were moving on the mountain and getting ready to go for the summit, you know, like we were the only people at Camp 3, we were the first people at Camp 2. Like it was, it was much more of a solitary experience than I had expected. But because, again, of the weather pushing everybody basically into three days of summiting at the end of May, going for the summit was a completely different experience. We decided not to take the first window simply because we knew there were going to be hundreds of people going for the summit. It was going to be crazy. And we'd hoped that by going on the, the second window, we wouldn't have that. But it was still, you know, so that first day there basically were 300 climbers on the southeast ridge. And the day we went, there were about 150 climbers on the southeast ridge. So that's still a lot of people. still though. a ton of people. And it was chaos. And for me, like the... The most important thing about climbing at high altitude is being able to go at your own pace. And you could not do that. And I found that really dangerous, basically, and frustrating. But you were able to successfully summit, which is terrific. Yes. But you, yes. you took that experience and, and you went with Chris Erickson to climb Lhotse the very same day. Yes. How did that did. go? I mean, I because mean, frankly, that, that's an amazing feat in and of itself. Tell me how those two experiences differed for you in terms of Summoning Everest under really bad conditions and then going, you know, across the valley over to Lhotse. Well, like a, sort of a hard fact that can kind of outline the difference a little bit is that both summit days on Everest and Lhotse, you're, you're gaining about the same amount of altitude. And for Everest, it took Chris and I 12 hours round trip and Lhotse took five hours. So it gives you an idea of how much the line of people slow you down and it totally takes you out of your climbing game and, and it messes with your head and... Uh, so many other effects. So for me, climbing Everest was frustrating, more frustrating than anything. And climbing Lhotse was just beautiful, fabulous. The summits are very different. The climbs themselves are very different. Everest is a ridge climb with a big kind of wide, flat summit. Lhotse is a couloir, so it's very consistently steep. It's one straight line that goes up. And then the summit is also very steep and small. You can only fit maybe four people on the summit at any given time. So two totally, totally different climbs. Being a skier, I'm much more comfortable climbing in couloirs and things like that than on, you know, ridges. So for me overall, I found Lhotse to be more akin to the, the kind of climbing I'm used to and the kind of mountain, high altitude, mountain experience I was expecting. Everest was really crowded and, and it was really scary because of that. and. Lhotse was just like, all right, I, I 
feel like I'm on my game now. Like I'm moving the way I want to move. And so it was a much better way to end the whole trip. So it seems to me that Everest is getting to be so popular and there are so many people that are trying to make it to the summit. You know, what do you think about some of the other places that there are to, to climb in the Khumbu Valley and other parts of the Himalaya? I mean, well, how, how do you, you convince people that, that there are other mountains yet to climb that might offer different or better experience? You know, I don't think you will convince people of that. People want to climb Everest. It's the highest mountain in the world. People are always going to want to climb it. I do believe that overall there are more climbers in the world than there were 10 years ago, whatnot, and more access. And so some of those smaller other peaks will be attractive to the person that isn't solely focused on Everest. And, you know, of course, now having been on Everest and climbed it, I would love to go back to the Kumbu and climb some of the other peaks around there. And I'm sure there's plenty of climbers but, that feel that way, but you're still going to Everest. So, I mean, there are so many 7,000-meter peaks. Nupse right there has hardly even been climbed, and it's right next door to Everest. And just tons of other peaks. But I still don't think you're going to convince people not to climb Everest. Like, it's just going to get more and more popular. I mean, I would imagine just with all the objective hazards of climbing Everest, it would become a little less appealing to, you know, and I'll just say, I mean, people who are real climbers, you know, as, as opposed to people who will climb Everest and never, ever climb anything ever again. Well, I, I, I mean, I think Everest is becoming less appealing to people who are real climbers and, you know, whatnot. But at the same time, you know, I've spent... 13, 14 years of my life climbing big mountains all over the world and the chance came to me to climb Everest and I jumped on it. So it's not to say that, you know, real climbers will or will not climb Everest. They'll probably climb a bunch of other peaks, but it's like if Everest does come across the table and you find yourself in that situation, you're probably still, you're going to say yes and probably climb Everest. And the thing with Everest is there's so many different routes up that mountain and the only place you're going to find crowds is on the southeast ridge. So if you want to climb Everest and you want to climb it in a fashion that's, you know, more true alpine style and away from the crowds, you know, you can climb the west ridge, you can climb the Kangsheng face, the north face. I mean, there's tons of different other routes on it. You know, your chances of success will probably go down dramatically, but you'll get that solitary mountain experience that alpine climbers are often looking for. So don't go on the southeast ridge. <laughs> I don't know. So for you, I mean, as you as you move forward in your career, um, what are your aspirations? I mean, what, what do you hope to accomplish with all of this? Uh, you know, that's a funny question. I, I don't think I've ever in my career had a clear goal as to what I want to say. Oh, I did this and this at the end of my, you know, when I'm not climbing as much as I'm climbing now. But basically, I just... You know, I really like high altitude. And it's not because I want to, you know, take off 14, 8,000 meter peaks. I just am so amazed at how my body responds to altitude. And it's just this insane way of pushing the limits and testing yourself. And so I definitely see myself going back to other 8,000 meter peaks. I'd really like, I've skied one. I'd like to try and ski, you know, another one. There's definitely a few out there that are very good for skiing. And then the other side of what I like to do is go 
as polar opposite as you can, which is go to like the most remote mountains that you can find where you don't have maps and you're, you're you know, not even your sat phones work and you're just way out there. So like those are the two ends of the spectrum for me. And um, I don't know, that's where I see myself going in the future. <laughs> yeah. You're probably one of the, the few mountaineers at the top of her game that's a mom. And, and I would imagine that you don't have very many role models. I mean, is there yeah. anybody out there who you consider a hero whose career that you try to emulate? You know, it's difficult. I, I definitely would wish I could go out and sort of seek advice for where I'm supposed to go with this and how I'm supposed to balance this thing. And I, and I don't necessarily find that outlet for me. Um, I feel like I am trying to figure it out on myself, by myself, you know, but um, at the same time, yeah, I definitely have climbers that, you know, you know, that I totally have heroes out there that do all kinds of different kinds of climbing, but they're not necessarily mothers or women even for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Conrad has been, felt so privileged to be able to do trips with him in the last few years. Um, there's a lot of French climbers that I sort of looked up to in my years in Chamonix. So there's definitely the people out there, but it's not quite the, I, I haven't quite found the, the mentor when it comes to balancing the, the mom and the climbing yet. So Here's what I, you know, I find really interesting then. Do you have other younger women climbers who might look to you as a role model and what kind of advice do you have to them? You, you know, know if they're trying to balance that climbing with being a mom. It is funny. I've definitely had a lot, I mean, a lot, maybe, you know, a half a dozen or more women that I've talked to over the last few years since I've had kids calling me and being like, you know, I, I'm a heli ski guide and I'm pregnant, you know, can I keep flying? Can I keep guiding while I'm pregnant? Or um, how do you balance your sponsored career and once you have kids how do your sponsors react do they still support you like what have you had to do and um so yeah i guess in some ways it's it's great to be able to pass on what i'm learning i'm still learning it but um i've, I've definitely been sought out at this point to get for advice basically and i'm you know more than happy to give it i can't say it's spot on but um i have it i have been and it's great I'm glad to know that like other women are seeing what I do and realize and, and doing it themselves. So it's good. Well, again, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. This has been a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hillary O'Neill lives with her family in Telluride, Colorado. You can learn more about her life and climbing online. Visit thenorthface.com and hit the exploration link. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by B Violin and Ginger Shankar and the Shanghai Restoration Project. Check out her album and movie soundtrack Himalaya Song online at HimalayaSong.com. The Joy Cheer Project is made possible with the support of sponsors Patagonia, Rayovac, and the New Belgium Brewing Company. We don't take money from just anyone. 
Sponsors share our values of conservation and sustainable business practices. Find links to their websites on our website at joytripproject.com. Thanks for listening, but you know, I want to hear from you. So please send a message with your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joytripproject.com. Go be joyful. And until next time, take care.